Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio, live from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It's time for the 2023 Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. We'll talk tonight with students from Gettysburg College interpreting Culp's Hill, staff members of one of Gettysburg's newest museums, and the man behind Gettysburg's own podcast addressing Gettysburg. That's all tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you today from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, but as always, not speaking for the Battle of Gettysburg or uh, any of the places in Gettysburg where we'll be broadcasting from this week, uh, nor for East Carolina University, the home base. Uh, this is the annual show where we go to the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College and uh, come to you almost live from places on or near the battlefield. Uh, this is the Wednesday, June 14th episode from 2023, although I'm talking to you today on Monday the 12th. Uh, next week, our guest on the last show of the season, the June 21 show, will be Ty Sedgley. He'll be talking about his book, Robert E. Lee and Lee. Many of you have already read it. If not, uh, you'd want to do that. It's a, a very interesting personal take on memory of the Civil War. Well, this has been a fascinating few days here at the Civil War Institute Conference. It always is, uh, and uh, has been so once again. Uh, it's been a pleasure to meet a number of listeners here this week. People have come up and, and said hello, and uh, it's great to put uh, faces with names. It's also been uh, fun for me to meet some of the people that we've been talking with on the show over the last several years. Uh, if you look at the roster of people presenting here, you'll recognize a lot of names uh, that you've heard on the show. Uh, Jeffrey Wirt, uh, Carrie Janey, Dave Silkenat, Harold Holzer, Craig Simons, Pete Carmichael, lots of others uh, who are familiar to you, and some of whom I was uh, meeting in person for the first time. It's always one of the pleasures of this conference, getting to connect with the voices with the people behind them. We had an author's book signing yesterday. We were seated alphabetically. I was 
had uh, Kenneth Null on my left and Carol Reardon on my right, and we had a delightful time. Uh, both of them, you've heard on the show before, and uh, we talked about uh, Civil War history, but we also talked trash about people we knew uh, in the field. It was, it was uh, really fun uh, to get a chance to do this. We met other people uh, around the Gettysburg College campus. There's been a fellow carrying a microphone, like correctly figure out as a podcaster, and you'll hear from him in the third segment of today's show. Uh, there are some very uh, well-produced posters of interpretive tours of Culp's Hill uh, that were done by students at Gaysburg College, and you'll hear from them in the second segment. I also had the chance to go to some new places I've not visited before because they just opened. Uh, for example, Adams County now has a Beyond the Battle Museum opened in 2023, and we'll talk about that in the future on this program. We'll also talk to some people I heard presenting, uh, heard a wonderful presentation on Confederate widows. Uh, Angela Elder, who wrote that book, and presented. Uh, she'll be on the show this fall, I hope. And uh, especially exciting to me was to, the first sighting in the wild of a Civil War talk radio t-shirt, not worn by a family member. And uh, not coincidentally, I also paid my first visit to the uh, Children of Gettysburg 1863 um, Museum. I'm not sure if museum is the right word. It turns out the t-shirt wearer was uh, director of that museum, Jamie Umstadt, and she's here with us today, along with uh, Bethany Yingling, your director, uh, what, what, manager? manager, manager is the title. Uh, so I'm sitting here in uh, just the Rupp House uh, mm-hmm. on Baltimore uh, Avenue, Baltimore Street, Baltimore Street yeah. uh, in Gettysburg, uh, inside the building that houses the children of Gettysburg, 1863 uh, institution. And it was a fascinating place to visit, and we'll learn more about it from uh, from our two guests too. Jamie, let's start with you. Uh, what is this place? Well, the Children of Gettysburg, 1863, we call it an interactive experience. So the kids can come in, and after being told not to touch anything at all of the other museums in town, they're absolutely allowed to come in here and hands-on history learn. So it's definitely one major thing that uh, sets us apart from some of those other places. But the kids can come in here, and they can roam and get their hands on historic materials. Um, some things we have are reproduction, some things that we have are actual real pieces of history, and they finally get to pick it up, look at it, try to read it, play with it, tinker with it, um, bandage a soldier, uh, all the things that they don't necessarily know that they want to do yet, but they love it when they get here. So uh, how long has this place been open? Almost two years. So we opened on Labor Day of 2021. And uh, Bethany, as manager, you're here every day watching the people come in and out? I'm not. Jamie is more the on-ground person. I'm more of the, I, unfortunately, the uh, accounting has to fall to somebody. <laughs> and the event planning has to fall to somebody. So I deal a lot more with administrative tasks. Um, for the museum, for the foundation. 
No, the foundation, this is the Gettysburg Foundation. foundation. Yeah. Uh, what is the Gettysburg Foundation? It is a nonprofit organization. We are the nonprofit partner of the Gettysburg National Military Park and the Eisenhower National Historic Site. Our job is to raise funds for projects that they are working on, as well as to help them basically with anything they really need done around. We also own and operate the visitor center for the national park. So um, that way they can focus on educating the public about this amazing battle that we had here and not have to worry about who's going to mop the floor. <laughs> we take care of that for them. That sounds like a great partnership. And, and anyone who's been to Gettysburg in the last 15 years has been to the visitor center and knows mm -hmm. uh, what a spectacular place it is. But so you've also got this place, the, the Robin mm -hmm. House. Does the foundation have other sites in town? We do. Um, there are two more. We have the Ticket to the Past experience, which is a virtual reality experience inside the Gettysburg Lincoln Railroad Station. Mm -hmm. And we have the George Spangler Farm and Field Hospital. So people can come to that location and learn about Civil War medicine and Civil War artillery. Because it was the artillery reserve as well as the field hospital. So the foundation really has uh, quite a footprint. We do. We definitely do. But uh, the the park is the crown jewel. Mm -hmm. We are just here to kind of supplement and make sure that, you know, some of these sites are preserved, help the park out a little bit. Now, I mean, Gettysburg gets its hundreds of thousands or, or million-plus visitors. Mm -hmm. uh, I recall my first visit here. In I want to say 1969, possibly, uh, I was a, a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, let's say I was an infant, but I was a, a kid, and <laughs> I was uh, already interested in the Civil War, and, mm -hmm. and this just, just reinforced my curiosity. But there must be a lot of families where mom or dad is the Civil War enthusiast, and mm -hmm. there's the your partner is along to be a good co-parent, and the children are being dragged <laughs> unwillingly uh, into this vortex. Um, yeah, yeah. Is this a place where they will find relief, uh, uh, These the, the children? And what age children do you aim at? Our target audience is uh, kindergarten through fifth grade, so 5 to 12. However, we've had families come in with toddlers that and kind of toddle along and pick things up and look at things along the way while their parents are actually just reading everything and getting just as much out of it. Um, we've had adults come in and who say, you know, we didn't necessarily come here for the history, but we just want to get a taste of it. And, or we were here not exactly for the battle, but we want to know about the civilian experience. And our museum really gives them the perspective perspective of the children that lived in town and it's a little seen perspective so people don't often get that that angle of oh gosh what was it like for the kids um so we we help out that way and the kids that come in that are in that age bracket they kind of they they can pinpoint kids that are up on our wall because they can choose a child and follow their story throughout the museum um they can find that person and go oh my gosh she's nine just like me and then follow their story through the museum and kind of look at their own lives along the way and see how, how they kind of line up. The museum was created to grow with the child. So hopefully they can come back multiple times. And every time as they grow older, the museum will grow with them. So if they're very little, they're here 
their their main thing is going to be play. They're going to learn through play. The next thing will be reading the panels, reading the storybooks. The next thing will be um, interacting with us, interacting with mm-hmm. our events. So every time they come, as they grow up, they can experience something different based off their cognitive level and interests. When I was here, uh, I guess yesterday, uh, checking out mm-hmm. to see what this place was, mm-hmm. uh, I saw a family community of two just adorable little girls, really toddlers, and they made a beeline for the first interactive site where you, you trace cursive writing, yeah. uh, which students aren't taught any longer. Mm-hmm. Many aren't. Uh, we had, uh, which as a professor, I find is a blessing because I can read students printing, <laughs> cannot read their writing. Um, but last week on the show, we interviewed an author who edited a collection of the, the left-handed penmanship contest after the war for Union veterans who'd lost their right arms in battle. Uh, and uh, we talked about penmanship. And so there are all kinds of links here. Uh, <laughs> just, But for these two little girls, it was just they were just playing, uh, mm-hmm. trying to trace mm-hmm. these letters. And it was just marvelous to see how, how engaged they were. And they know nothing about the battle of mm-hmm. Gettysburg yet, but they'll go home and... Say so we went to a cool place. Yeah. The only problem we've run into in this museum is that the kids don't want to leave. <laughs> so lucky for us, there are three ice cream spots within a close proximity that the parents can then bribe them when they're ready to go exactly. to go to. So yeah. I think we hit a niche that we were unexpected to find. Not only are the parents thankful that there's something here that they don't have to tell their kids, stop touching that. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. Don't put that in your mouth. Mm-hmm. The, they now also have something to hopefully engage them later mm-hmm. um, with. So I, I am very proud of what we've accomplished here. So I have the impression, well, I had the impression from my brief visit and from what you're saying, then, mm-hmm. that it, it's working. It is. Yeah. It's definitely working. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things about this museum is actually it has no technology buttons or tablets or screens for them to push buttons or look at. It's all mechanical stuff. All, all things from the 1800s that they could pick up, like all the kitchen utensils, all the kitchen kit gears, like flour sifters, irons. Um, geez, all butter sorts churns. of things. Yeah, butter churns. Um, using that washboard. It's the things like that that... They come in and they look at, and we try to get across to them how, hey, isn't life so much easier today with these creations along the way? But this is what you did, and it worked. Um, and it just took longer. The kids but, are fascinated by it, and they really are. By the time we get to the, they get all the way around into the exit, they don't even realize they've relearned how to play. It's amazing to see. I mean, even the exhibits, the informational exhibits, I know it's now that you say this, I realize you're right. There are no touch screens, mm-hmm. but there are old school raise the panel and see what's mm-hmm. underneath, mm-hmm. which were state of the art for adult museums 30 years ago. <laughs> but now it's come full circle where it really is a state of the art to reintroduce young people to this kind of exhibit technology. And adults are finding that they like it too. Like, mm-hmm. I cannot begin to tell you the number of adults that have come on and go, this is more my speed. Mm-hmm. You know, I get that it's for kids, but I am not, you know, a buff on all mm-hmm. of this. So I really, really needed something to just be the basics. Mm-hmm. And they really enjoy reading this, the panels and getting more out of it. We 
they are fascinated by what they're learning here, adults as well as kids. What about the, the house that we're in? What, uh, did this play a role? Was this here at the time of the battle? Yes. The, um, the houses that currently exist, no, but there was a house here. Okay. It looked, uh, well, it was a two-story brick home, the only mm-hmm. early 19, no, 1840s. Um, and John Rupp and Caroline Rupp lived here with their six kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, John is forever known as being the guy who stayed here and took cover in his basement to keep an eye on his property during the time of the battle. Um, so after being right here on the end of the line of town, kind of in between no man's land, it got hit with so many musket balls that when Caroline came back, she pretty much, they devised that they were going to remodel. So they're in this beautiful home that you're in now. This was completed in 1868. Yeah. The, uh, talking about experience, civilian experience and being here during the battle, that does seem to be a, an untapped market. I bring a, a, a bus tours here with Stephen Ambrose historical tours every year. And we've always, for decades, uh, stopped at the Shriver House Museum. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, They're wonderful, too. And the visitors come away. It, it's their favorite place. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they come in expecting nothing, mm-hmm. a house tour. Who wants another house tour? Uh, <laughs> and they, they learn about the civilian experience. Mm-hmm. And now you've got that happening here. You've got that at the Beyond the Battle mm-hmm. uh, new museum uh, just, just beyond the Gettysburg College campus. And then you've got that very much here in this building. Uh, it, it seems like it's a long overdue recognition that visitors are interested in more than just the armies. Mm-hmm. And, and the civilian experience touches them in a personal level. A lot of these kids come in here and we have them choose a character to follow. And it's one of the six kids that we, the main children that we follow throughout the museum. And they pick a character based off of what they're interested in. Oh, that uh, Mary Warren's holding a book and I love to read. So I'm going to choose Mary Warren or Sadie Bushman is nine and I'm nine. So I'm going to choose Sadie Bushman. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it comes down to the color of the dress, the kid is wearing, mm-hmm. but that's, that works. you know, that works too. Mm-hmm. So it is hitting them on a very personal level, which is, I think the best way to learn. Just drawing another comparison, the Beyond the Battle Museum has a, uh, what I would call a high-tech immersive experience, yes. which yeah. you spend a few moments inside of the building as if you were in a Gettysburg house during the battle. Mm-hmm. It's very impressive and, and effective. But you have the same thing here. You have a room mm-hmm. where uh, it's all low-tech. There's no flashing lights. There's no sound. But if the child visitor or adult visitor wants to see what's going on outside, mm-hmm. they literally open a door uh, mm-hmm. to see what's out there. And what's behind it, I'm, no spoiler. Uh, I won't tell you. Visitors <laughs> come here and see. Uh, but it, it's, in its own way, even more effective because you open the door yourself mm-hmm. and you don't know what's behind it. Uh, and whereas at the Historical Society, that experience is amazing. It and is, I, yes. I, I, mm-hmm commend them for thinking that up because that's a that is a that is very cool Mm -hmm. gives me chills yeah Yeah. every Mm -hmm. time but we're dealing with a younger group right so like i knew that when i took my three-year-old there that he that would not go oh it's dark and noisy (laughs) yeah yeah and so that's what we're doing here is Mm -hmm. we're taking that a similar experience but making it for a kid so it's it's not as scary but still gets the point across. And by the end of it, I mean, 
they get to see with their person that they've followed what they actually look like in real life. We give them a card with their face on it, their actual picture, and they can put that connection together of, oh my gosh, I have been reading a real story, like a true story all the way through here. So if visitors uh, want to learn more about this, do you have a website? We go to the GettysburgFoundation.org website, and you can click on the drop-down for historic sites, or you can call the main Gettysburg Foundation phone number um, and get advanced sale tickets. Okay, so there is an admission charge. Kids are free, 12 and under. Okay. We have a local entrepreneur who pays for the kids' tickets. Wonderful. I know. Very, that's, very that's sweet. That's impressive, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then adults, so 13 and older, are $9.95. Uh, it is. And it's free for members of the Gettysburg Foundation. So there's another way you can contribute. Listeners, uh, if you come to Gettysburg, next time you come to Gettysburg, uh, take time to see this place, uh, especially if you've got children. Uh, but even if not, if it's, uh, if it's worth a walkthrough. Uh, Jamie and Bethany, thank you both so thank much you. for being on Civil War Talk. Thank you. Listeners, we'll be back with another segment. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking to you today from the battlefield of Gettysburg, and specifically the campus of Gettysburg College, in this segment I have uh, with us three students from Gettysburg College, Emma Wylam, Aidan Stevens, and Michael Alessi, uh, who have produced posters that were on display today during uh, some of the talks given at the conference. These posters are not the kinds of things you'd see at National History Day, high school level, these look like the kind of posters you see graduate students producing at a professional academic conference. Uh, they all deal with the interpretation of Culp's Hill on the battlefield at Gettysburg. And what I've done is invited these uh, students here today to talk about their work, uh, where it comes from and where it's going. So. Uh, let's start with that question. Um, you, you've each made these posters that essentially propose walking tours of Culp's Hill, but with uh, substantial detail as to what to do. Um, wh- what's, what's the most important thing, uh, Emma, let me start with you, in, in your tour of Culp's Hill at Gettysburg? Um, I think one of the most important things amidst my tour is definitely understanding the notion of savage war and how that goes along with death and how people were reacting to it. Um, I focus a lot on how manliness and courage goes into such a thing as savage war, which 
saboteur is just how you um, kind of deal with the killing and how killing is necessary within war. As that Clausewitz statement that we've heard earlier today, um, war is just a political like passage by another means. Um, so I enjoy focusing on those aspects. So this is very much a far cry from a sort of traditional interpretation where the focus is on whose regiment in which brigade moved where and what the casualty levels were. This is uh, quite different. Uh, and I noticed uh, Aiden and Michael years also looked at concepts beyond just uh, the tactical. Uh, Aiden, what, what struck you about your about Culp's Hill that you wanted a visitor to take away? I think one of the big things was just the how different um, from uh, battlefield, like other parts of the battlefield and other parts of the Civil War, because um, the main kind of idea you have with Civil War combat is linear warfare, um, kind of men marching in lines to go shoot and volley fire at each other. But on Culp's Hill, the terrain really prevented that kind of fighting. You had a very forested and rocky hill that the Confederate forces under Johnson had to walk up. And on the Union side of things, they made earthworks, they made defensive positions that allowed them to hold the hill with a smaller force. And more interestingly, the main attack that is often cited on July 2nd was at night and involved night fighting, which is something you rarely see, especially during um, Civil War combat. So it was just a very unique time uh, at, at Culp's Hill in the terms of just the fighting itself, um, just the technology used, like the earthworks, and just the style of fighting was just something that was abnormal, but still very interesting. And, Michael, what about you? You're, uh, again, I'll let you speak for yourself. What, what did you see that you wanted people to take away from your tour? So what Emma and Aiden both already talked about, um, I also noticed, but something that was important to me about Culp's Hill was that it was really the first big tourist destination on the Gettysburg battlefield. Um, because of all of the wooded areas, the destruction from the battle was really evident for about 30 to 40 years after the battle, um, which drew people there. People could see the trees ripped apart, the craters from the earthworks, um, and get a sense of the scope and scale of the battle. And then the trees healed over and the undergrowth covered the destruction on the ground. And um, the park, the Culp's Hill lost out to more popular places. Um, the copes of trees and the high watermark, um, for example. But the Culp's Hill in particular has a lot of those early monuments as a result of that that were built. There was a big boom of monument building from the Union um, in the late 1880s, early 1890s. And so looking at Culp's Hill as a place that was artistically created to be really the first big commemorative landscape, to use the words that the park throws around a lot these days, um, that was Culp's Hill, and it continues to be that. I mean, that's the kind of fact that is not readily evident. Uh, most of us, you know, listeners, you've mostly, you've read about Gettysburg, you know where Culp's Hill is, you know the fighting that takes place there on the second and third days of the battle. But facts like that, that this was originally a more popular destination than Cemetery Ridge, um, is the kind of thing that doesn't immediately come out 
in histories of the battle, or even histories of the battlefield afterward. This project, uh, not something you did as a hobby, presumably. Uh, tell us, this, uh, Emma, this was a class project? Yes, it was. It was a class project. It was the um, overarching, like basically a term paper for this class, which was uh, Gettysburg History and Memory. It's a 200-level class here at Gettysburg. Um, it was, we worked on it little by little, um, and it still ended up to be a monumental project. It was, <laughs> it's longer than even some of our uh, capstone papers, which is like the culminating senior project of one of our semesters. Um, I, for one, my paper turned out to be what, 35 pages? 37. <laughs> How a about lot. you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I forget the exact, oh wait, I'm holding it in my hands. Minus 36. <laughs> and we all definitely edited it down from around 40 to 50, from 50 yeah. pages. So, so these are the papers in support of the, uh, the, the posters yeah. that, that we saw today. Yes. And I have to say, I've, I've, every, I've talked to a number of people today here at the conference and said, I'm going to talk with the uh, creators of those posters. And everyone I said that to said, oh, those posters are great. Uh, just uniformly good feedback on them. Uh, and, well, let me ask this of you. The approach is very sophisticated. Things like exploring uh, the nature of savage warfare, the, the uniqueness of the tactics there, the, the, the memory landscape. Uh, all of you have those in, in each of your presentations. And, in fact, all of you have more than one of those concepts. And as I was reading that, and I'll ask this as a practical public historian, I'm thinking if I'm leading a tour group here on a walking tour, even if it's uh, a young group, I recently got to take ROTC students from East Carolina to uh, Petersburg. Uh, so we could go anywhere. Uh, they, they, they could climb any slope. Uh, and they had all the stamina in the world. But even with them, that's a lot to digest, what you presented. Are these projects practical walking tours, or are they more outlines of where the future might go? I tried really hard to make mine practical. I think we all did. <laughs> um, but in particular, I looked for monuments because there are so many that had things that I could gesture to. Um, my last stop takes place at Forbes Rock. Um, very famous site. It's in a very famous etching, um, very famous photography by Matthew Brady. Um, and recently, in the past couple of years, they renovated, the Park Service renovated a trail down to there, and they cut out a lot of the undergrowth, and they made it look as close to how it could have looked from that. Um, and using that very practical, tangible changes that were made is a really good way to lead into the idea of a commemorative landscape. Um, the 43rd North Carolina Monument on East Confederate Avenue ends with the line, all that could be done, all that man could do was done nobly. And that's a really good lead in to talk not only about the idea of savage war and that it really wasn't all so noble, but also the lost cause. Um, and so I found that tying it into the, to the landscape and to monuments was a good way to make that be more approachable. I think one of the big reasons behind why Professor Carmichael assigned this project was one of the readings we did was by Spielvogel, and it was a critique of how kind of the modern um, national parks, just the way the road stops and a lot of the 
um, signage around um, Gettysburg in particular, um, just because of dint of necessity um, and kind of keeping in with the original village and by John Bachelder of keeping it as a very neutral commemorative space are very sanitized. They, when you talk about casualties, you talk about numbers, you talk about maybe some of the tactics were used. And while it is like meant to be a bite-sized bit of information, um, the real point was to go into a lot more detail of different parts of the battlefield that may get neglected. Um, Cause you really see like the tactical perspective. You don't really hear about how did a man like John Futch feel when his brother was killed or what was the reaction of civilians behind the line behind maybe seeing like, Oh, this house was used as a, field hospital or an aid station, what about the family that stayed there at, uh, for example, I did on the Benner farm and the family was there for the entire battle. Um, and after the uh, battle, they found not only bodies of men, but there was one anecdote of a sharpshooter who had tied himself into one of the trees on the property and was shot and was still connected into the tree dead. Um, and another thing was on the Benner farm uh, itself is they were known by the quartermaster corps of the Army of the Potomac because they had taken supplies from the battlefield and recovered it to kind of keep as souvenirs. Um, so you don't really hear this many parts of the battlefield, and that was really the point of taking angles in using Gettysburg and Culp's Hill as a more specific point to talk about wider things in the war, civilian experience, the savage experience, the good death, and just various other views beyond just the tactical experience on the field. Let me switch gears a little bit and ask you something about yourselves. Um, that uh, this was a class project, yes. uh, Professor Peter Carmichael, who listeners you know has been a guest on the show uh, more than once. He was this time last year, in fact. Uh, I think we were sitting in the same room talking about the program here. Uh, so, students, uh, you can say anything you want, and he won't listen. Don't, don't. <laughs> uh, the uh, I want to ask you about yourselves. Uh, um, you said this was a, a 200-level class that implies uh, we use three, four digits at East Carolina. I have no idea why. We have 2,000-level classes. Oh. They're, not, <laughs> they're not 10 times higher. 3,000 3, is a junior level. 4,000 is a senior capstone. Um, but this is a, a sophomore year level course. This, yeah. But the concept you're talking about and the work you've done is, I would say, very sophisticated. Um, well, what 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 are your levels? Well, the big thing uh, I am a recent graduate. Uh, Emma's a rising junior. No, senior. senior. Michael's a rising junior. Um, and Professor Carmichael, the the course itself, history and memory, started off as a three hundred level course, and he dropped it down. Um, but it, 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 from our experience with all the other members who can't be here today, um, that would be a lot of people. Um, but it was it was a wide variety of people. It was there were seniors, there were juniors, there were sophomores, and there were freshmen. There was a wide variety of people in this course. Um, so it very much had a lot of different perspectives. And I know me personally, I am more inveigled in like military history and the Civil War compared to Emmett Michael. And you guys had a different perspective going in. Mm -hmm. um, so I took this class as a sophomore. Um, one of the big pieces of feedback that we all gave Dr. Carmichael at the end of the semester was that it should have stayed a 300-level class. I'm with you. But uh, what drew me to the class and what drew, I think, a lot of people to the class is the fact that it's a class about the history of Gettysburg at Gettysburg, where we there were a couple classes more 
like almost every week once the weather got better because it was a spring semester class where we went out onto the battlefield mm-hmm. and instead of learning about stuff in the classroom, we were learning about stuff where it happened, wow. which is just an amazing opportunity um, and really helps to nail down a lot of those more complex ideas. Puts that's, you where it needs to be. Yeah. It, it takes like them from being very abstract to being, oh, yeah, I'm not climbing up that hill <laughs> with <laughs> a massive pack because we went out to Culp's Hill on a day that was horribly rainy and muddy. Um, and we're all, none of us dressed for it. I was like probably <laughs> one of the people closest because I had on actual hiking shoes. Um, and it, it was just an amazing opportunity. And that I think drew in the seniors and the juniors and the, me. <laughs> Let me ask a, a, another question. We don't have too much time, but, uh, in regard to you, obviously, you, Aiden, you brought an interest in military history. Um, are you a history majors? Uh, all? Yes. Yes. Uh, so we've got a basic interest in history. Um, I taught uh, our 300, 3,000 level Civil War course last year and drew the best qualified students I'd ever had, but also the fewest. And I was struck by that because of all the, the public discussion of the Civil War, the monument controversies, uh, and yet enrollment fell dramatically uh, in that course. Do you, it, why would that be? Do, is there a similar thing happening here? Is there less interest, or is there the interest you'd expect? I don't think it's uh, happening here just because we are situated in Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. Um, so that a lot of history students actually come here to experience mm-hmm. the Civil War in a different manner and come here loving the Civil War, being history majors. Um, in other schools, it might be a disconnect between where the battlefield is or where the closest battlefield might be and then like how they interact with it. One theory that someone raised was the students were shy of conflict and didn't want to be in a room where people would have uncomfortable discussions about memorialization and about some of these aspects of the war, the savage war, uh, the role of African-Americans during Lee's invasion and so on. Uh, Do uncomfortable discussions arise in your class? Very much so. Um, But I think the way Professor Carmichael and we all, because he, there were several topics we never got to touch on because we all had driven the discussion. There are things we talk about way too long um, because we all engaged in group discussion and even with like controversial topics, even people of differing opinions, we all respected each other. We all brought these in fair light with criticisms or support and it was really just everyone kind of coming together and realizing regardless of where we stand on a certain issue, this is a discussion. We're all building something together. We have just a minute left. Uh, let me start with you, Michael, because you have the longest time to think about this. How does this relate to your future plans? Oh, boy. Um, I So first of all, it's a good resume builder to be here. Um, but I also, I'm not entirely sure 100% what I want to do in the future yet. But Perfectly good answer. The skills of doing that analysis and that conversation um, and being able to take these very complex ideas and present them in a way that theoretically it would be digestible by people at a walking tour. You can use them in any field. Aiden, plans in history? Uh, maybe. Uh, I'm a STEM major, so that's kind of my track. 
but and which is everyone says that when I take history, but I just have always loved history, uh, and this course from the beginning was something I was taking for fun. Uh, no requirement, no nothing. As a senior, I was like, I want to take this course because I want to take it with Professor Carmichael, and it's a history course, and I love it. There you go. <laughs> Emma, what about you? Um, I'm actively working in the public history field currently. I have um, a grant project at my local historical society, um, working with Simon Cameron correspondences, and this is building on that. So. <laughs> Well, that sounds like a great uh, uh, future, a great builder. There's our time telling us to move it <laughs> along here. Um, uh, Boomer wrestling with his own phone here, trying to get it to stop. Uh, I wish we had more time to chat, but uh, best of luck to all of you wherever life takes you next. Uh, congratulations on the outstanding projects. Uh, listeners, we'll be back in just a moment. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu. Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. I am broadcasting, uh, webcasting, I guess, from the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College, as we do once a year. This is our third segment. We've looked at the uh, Gettysburg Foundation Children's Museum in town. Uh, in earlier segments, we also talked with some Gettysburg College undergraduates about their class project designing uh, interpretive tours of Culp's Hill. Uh, while I've been doing this, going around this week, I've noticed uh, some men in black t-shirts with microphones and uh, recording equipment, and I concluded they must be doing a podcast of some kind. And my first reaction, of course, was, how can I crush these interlopers? (laughs) But upon more mature consideration, I decided the Civil War is not a niche topic that can host only one podcast. Uh, Perhaps there's room for for more. Indeed, there there are already more. If you run into an old friend uh, and you can't remember anything about them, it's a safe bet to just say, oh, love your podcast, uh, because uh, everyone has one now. So I thought I'd inquire and see what's going on. And so we're going to talk in this segment with Matt Callery, who is the uh, host and uh, creator, and and we'll find out what other roles, of the podcast Addressing Gettysburg. Matt, welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you, Jerry. You know, can I say that that is also my initial reaction when I learn about another Civil War podcast or, or, you know, a new Gettysburg podcast? And then I realized how hard it is to actually get a podcast off the ground and uh, and keep it going. That's the hard part is keeping it going. So I, and then I realized that nobody's a threat because no, nobody, no. most people won't don't have the whatever to keep going with it. Well, and and there's a lot of hours in a day people can listen to more than one podcast, right. and uh, 
uh, and, and they, they cover different things. So let, let's talk about addressing Gettysburg, your podcast. Uh, let's start with the basics. What is it about? Well, it's uh, initially it was about the battle, but I love Gettysburg, it just everything about it. I love living here. Um, I've moved here twice, not moving away again. Um, and uh, it, it sort of morphed into not just the battle, but also the culture in and around Gettysburg, what it's like to live here, uh, the touristy things there are to do. Um, and uh, uh, it basically really is just me showing off the things and the people that I just love about this area. Because, um, you know, the, the licensed battlefield guides, especially our show is very heavily guested with licensed battlefield guides. Because to me, they're kind of like the celebrities of the area. And um, I, I got to know a lot of them. And I was like, the rest of the country or the world or whoever listens needs to meet these people too. And um, so we talk about the battle through them and um, it's kind of turned into its own thing. It's, uh, you know, we have events that we do in person. So we have like a kind of a community feeling and um, we put out a lot of shows. I'm exhausted. <laughs> it, it, well, how many shows? How, how does, well, does this appear regularly? Yeah, or? we put out a minimum of 74 a year. Okay. And that's, and then there's bonuses like that during the, so typically we have a free feed and we have our Patreon feed hmm. and on the free feed, we put out two um, shows called ask a Gettysburg guide per month. But there are also events. There's uh, the anniversary. That's three days of battle. So that month we put out three episodes and I don't put out the ask a guides cause those are my, you know, I've met my quota for the month and then some. And then like uh, this weekend, we're covering, you know, the the conference here. So we've recorded the lectures, uh, not all of them, but a, a handful of them and put them out um, and we'll continue to throughout the week. During the winter, when the park does their winter lectures, we record those and put those out as well. So I'm trying to bring Gettysburg to the listener. So obviously, if you're recording the lectures here or uh – at the battlefield, you have a relationship with Civil War Institute, with the uh, Gettysburg Foundation or the Park Service. Yes. Uh, and you're not just pirating these materials. No, no, no. Um, so the uh, so we were, were invited here mm -hmm. by uh, the Civil War Institute to promote it. Um, so putting out, you know, the lectures. Plus also, it's on PCN, which is public broadcasting. So it's kind of out there anyway. With the park... I, I did go to Chris Gwynn, who's the chief interpretive ranger there, and I said, I'm thinking of doing this. Is there any kind of conflict? Is that okay? And he said, it's public domain. We're public employees. It's for everybody. So you're absolutely welcome to come and record it. Um, for example, when the Gettysburg Foundation holds some kind of lecture at the visitor center, I don't go to that because they're not a public, uh, you know, they're not the government, and that's not public domain. So um, I don't record that stuff, you know. Okay. So the when you said you do ask a guide programs, are these interactive? Do, do yeah. So we, we don't do them live. Once in a while, we will. Um, but what we do is uh, we get a guide booked and a topic, and I go to our patrons and I tell them so and so is coming on to talk about such and such. Submit your questions. 
they do. Then when we record the show, the guide comes on, he gives us a background on the subject, and we take our commercial break and come back and ask the questions that our patrons submitted. You mentioned commercial break, and that brings up a question of how this is supported. But maybe before we get to that, let me ask you, how, how did you come up with the idea to do this? Or do, do you have a day job separate from this? Got it. Okay. Uh, so initially, this was going to be a documentary film about tourism, starting from the minute the army is left to today. Um, but films are really hard to get off the ground. And I had I'd created a Facebook page for the film and left it for years. And then I went and I did podcasts, mostly for fun, but kind of just to hone the craft. And um, I noticed that I hadn't put anything out on this Facebook page for the film for years, but the numbers of followers keep growing or kept growing. And that told me, it's like, even if you don't put anything out, People love Gettysburg so much, they'll follow a Gettysburg page that's been dormant for four years. So I said, you know what? Maybe this someday will be a good podcast. But I wanted to really learn the craft and, and go through all the pitfalls first so that I could succeed with this. So and, yeah. it was, was film then? Uh, that was my book? original goal was mm -hmm. to get into film. And I did work in – like I did wedding videos and okay. things like that. And um it wasn't really for me, but I got good experience and I learned a lot about the craft. So anyway, I, I decided to start uh, addressing Gettysburg as a podcast. Initially, it was narrative form. And I wrote, um, I started back at Antietam and worked our way through 1863 and got as far as June 30th. And um, when I put the first episode of the in the narrative form out, you know, it got a lot of downloads in the first month and then you know each month as it just sat there i'd get fewer and fewer and my friend said you need to have some kind of filler in between the writing and producing of these narratives so he came up with ask a gettysburg guide and uh i was like that's a great idea so uh that's what we did and then the audience really liked it and so that's really now become the show and these narrative episodes, I still haven't, I've gotten up to June 30th and for the last uh, two years, I've been trying to write July 1st, but I have severe writer's block and it's not coming out. Um, so, yeah, so that was the, uh, the idea. And at first, no, I wasn't making my living off of it, um, but my goal was to make my living off of it because I love communicating with people. I love putting shows together. And uh, when I don't get to do that, I get very angry. <laughs> so, so I, but I, you know, I was like, well, you're going to have to do what you have to do until this works. And I did, but it didn't take very long. The pandemic was a godsend for me, even though I hated the whole idea of locking everybody up. Um, I, it helped me. My audience grew by leaps and bounds then. And within a, probably, well, actually last fall, I, I quit my other uh, source of income because I, it just gets in my way now. So yeah, now I'm full time. Most of the support comes from Patreon, but, um, uh, local advertising is also, um, pretty helpful as well. And merchandise, you know, you gotta have various sources. Well, you certainly do. Civil War Talk Radio listeners know that I will put in a plug for the Civil War Talk Radio book and bourbon fund. 
periodically. <laughs> yeah. But I can safely say I could not quit my day job on, on that. Uh, indeed, that's one of the, the pleasures of doing the Civil War Talk Radio podcast is it's it's purely a, a side gig that I do uh, right. out of service to the, uh, the, the Civil War community. But it's fascinating to learn that, that it can actually it support can, someone. But you have to be willing to go without a lot of the things that I, I'm in a, I don't know which way. Some days I feel like I'm lucky. Other days I feel like a loser. I'm not married. I don't have any kids. So I don't have to worry about other people with their hand in my pie. Um, and, um, I, you know, I kind of purposefully did that because I knew I wasn't in my right career mm-hmm. and I knew that a, a family would hold me back from anything and I'd be no good for them. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, it took a little too much time to, to get there. But anyway, so I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice a lot of things in order to see this grow. Uh, most people can't do that. And if you, and you, I, from what I understand is you didn't start out doing this, you had a career already. Right. So it started as a side gig and you probably, I bet you though, that now you could probably make a living off of this if you monetize it the right way. That, that's, that's something, uh, a conversation my wife has with me regularly yeah. is you've got all these listeners and you're not getting any money for it. And no, I'm not. But you don't um, want it. Uh, right. It, it, uh, we do have commercials on this show. I've never listened to them. I gather that they are for other shows on the Voice American Network, some of which I think are pretty loopy from what I've heard. But <laughs> that's, you know, I was having an interesting conversation with uh, people here and I've met a lot of listeners to to both of our podcasts uh, over the last few days. And the idea of um, having advertisers, there's the risk with Civil War Talk Radio of compromising what we do. Uh, if, if a book publisher advertises and I interview the author, do I have to be nice to them? Uh, well, I'm naturally nice, so that's not a problem. But let me ask, in your case, do you? it sounds like if you have local advertisers, that's consistent with your your podcast mission. Yes, I, I'm I'm very. I want my ad breaks to sound like your potential itinerary for your vacation here. So I'm not gonna, a lot of podcasts. There's a there's a there's a service that you can sign up for um, where uh, you can get you know big sponsors like Blue Apron or mm-hmm. you know all these things, and um, everybody advertises Blue Apron and everything, but it has nothing to do with what you're listening to. And I was like, I could do that, but that I don't know if that's what my audience wants, you know, but I do know my audience wants to visit Gettysburg because they tell me this. So I want to give them an idea. Well, here's a hotel, here's a bookstore, here's a restaurant, you know, whatever it is. And um, yeah, it's got to, it's all got to make sense. So if I were to take uh, a non-Gettysburg sponsor, it would have to be related to the Civil War or a Civil War town or something like that. So how many, uh, this is just asking for a guess, percentage of your audience, how many actually visit Gettysburg and how many are just listening and vicariously imagining themselves here? Yeah, that's a good question. I, the majority of them, I would, uh, so the top five states in the United States that listen or that have the highest concentration of listeners all are within a four to eight hour drive of Gettysburg. So, um, you know, Pennsylvania is number one, Maryland, Virginia, New Jersey, 
uh, and Ohio, or I'm sorry, not New Jersey, New York and Ohio are the top five typically, and they all kind of alternate each month or fluctuate. Um, and uh, but so I, I, I couldn't tell you a percentage, but I know that I meet a lot of listeners in town, and it's kind of like it's funny because it's kind of like a reverse fame thing. You know, a real famous person goes anywhere and people know them. I go anywhere, nobody knows me. But I walk around here, uh, then people will stop me all the time and in the weirdest places. So, yeah, so it's it's nice. It's like I could feel special as long as I never leave town. <laughs> yeah, do they recognize you? This is an audio form, but you're. I, but I, we seen, do a video show too. Well, that's what I wanted to ask. I've seen you have a presence on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, so you do some visual things as well. Yeah, we're. I never really took YouTube seriously, um, but I realize now everybody is uh, so used to having everything just spoon-fed to them. And a lot of people, younger people especially, and this isn't a knock on them, this is just the way their parents who are my age raised them and ruined them. <laughs> they, they're, you know, they grew up with a screen glued to their eyeballs. And um, if, they, if they're not looking at something they don't have the attention span to listen so that like an audio only podcast for people under a certain age is very difficult so like i the majority of my audience is over 35 um because they know how to actually just sit and listen and you know imagine but the imagination of the super young is just completely burnt out so how long is an average podcast on addressing gettysburg um, typically about an hour, 15 to hour and a half, okay. the, the Ask a Guides. Then we have our, on our Patreon, we do, we release four episodes a week on Patreon. I'm sorry, four episodes a month on I Patreon. I was going to say, that, that's, <laughs> that's a skip. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Someday maybe four a week, mm-hmm. but I'd have to have a lot more patrons for that. But, um, and, my, and simply because like, I, I appreciate people supporting us financially, but I'm, I've got such a guilt over it. That and and it's a lot of work. Like people tell me I shouldn't feel guilty because it's like the amount of work. Because if I were to actually keep track of my hours, I'd be making like fifteen cents an hour right. if I really. Because you know there is no nine to five. I, I don't have weekends. I, I and this is becoming an issue in my life. Like I need to have a life, you know. But um, I feel like if you're giving me your money, you need to get a little something extra. So we do four episodes over on Patreon, and those are more. Um, in depth, um, we, we do more interview style and sometimes those go on really long, but it has to just have the slightest connection to Gettysburg and we'll talk about it. Like one of our more popular episodes is the Gettysburg connections to the little bighorn really? and yeah. And you know, officers who were here and there and, um, it was Jim Hessler and myself that did it. And people love that episode. They love when Jim comes on because Jim has his own podcast and he comes on mine every once in a while and uh, we just have a good rapport and people like that. And we're both custard nuts, so we have fun talking about custard. If people listening to this show want to listen to Addressing Gettysburg, what's the uh, fastest way there? uh, Fastest way there is just go to whatever platform you're used to listening to podcasts on and search for us and we'll be there. I mean, we're on platforms I've never even heard of. I think they're probably in other countries, but I just sign up for every one that my publisher allows. And uh, so we're we're pretty much everywhere you can find us, including YouTube. And uh, we do a, a live um, weekly show on YouTube that is about uh, 
what's going on in Gettysburg today in, in town. Well, this has been uh, really enlightening. It's interesting to talk to someone else who does podcasts, which I don't think we've done in the last 19 years. Uh, but it sounds like we really are on a frontier of, of new ways to communicate about the Civil War. But you especially, uh, you're like a pioneer. Well, we, we, we fell into this in 2004, yeah, we in, in North early. America, uh, and still going. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we can't keep going with this segment because we're out of time. Always happens too fast on the show. Uh, but Matt Callery, thanks very much. Uh, good luck with addressing Gettysburg. Listeners, uh, check out that podcast. Thank you very much, Jerry. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.